All right, well, I think we'll get started. Good afternoon. I'm Mary Sprunger, professor of history and program director of history and political science here at EMU. And uh, I want to welcome all of our audience members here in our physical space and also those of you who are out there um, watching us on live stream. So welcome. Normally, you would find our provost, Fred Niss, up here hosting this event, but he is not able to be here today. He is a guest at Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. Provost Niss and President Huxman were invited guests to a gathering of education leaders um, at that um, site, and we'll, uh, they're going to be getting a tour and study of the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Many of you will recall that this past May, Brian Stevenson was the commencement speaker at EMU, and um, EMU awarded him an honorary doctorate. So, it is my great honor to introduce our speaker for this afternoon, Simone Horst, Special Collections Librarian and Archivist at EMU. Simone was one of our star history majors, graduating in 2012. And her interest in EMU's special collection stems all the way back to her first year when she applied for a work-study job in the EMU archives um, as a student. And she has worked in our historical library and archives ever since. She became the sort of head special collections librarian and archivist after completing a master's degree in library and information science from the University of South Carolina in 2014. Her research interests include the history of the book, Mennonite history, and genealogy. Simone lives in Harrisonburg with her husband and two young sons. Uh, just a few uh, housekeeping items. After the presentation here, there will be time for discussion, uh, Q&A. And then at 5, there will be a reception with some light refreshments outside in the foyer up there. Students, remember to sign out if you want Convo credit, and I assume you've already signed in. I like to uh, work our wonderful rare book collection into any course that I can, so I enjoy collaborating with Simone in class visits and projects. So I'm especially excited about the topic for today, judging books by their covers, the European collection in the Menno Simons Historical Library. So please um, join me in welcoming Simone Horst. Thank you, Mary, for that wonderful introduction. Hello and welcome to this colloquium. I'm going to apologize in advance in case I'm a little croaky and have a cold, as many of us probably do currently. Um, like Mary said, I'm Simone Horst. I'm the Special Collections Librarian and Archivist here at EMU. I work with our three special collections, that is the Menno Simons Historical Library, the Eastern Mennonite University Archives, and the Virginia Mennonite Conference Archives. Today, I'll be discussing the sabbatical project that I completed this past summer, which was an intensive study into rare books and book history and a review of our European collection. So to frame our discussion today, I'm gonna have three questions that I'll be covering about the European collection. What is it? How did it get here to EMU? And why does it matter? And this picture here is a book plate in one of our rare books, and we'll be discussing book plates in depth more later on. So what is it? 
I'm going to go way back and zoom out a little bit and discuss the Menno Simons Historical Library as a whole. So, E.G. Gaiman began collecting Mennonite-specific materials in the 1920s, but the Historical Library as a separate entity, entity didn't emerge until 1942, when there was actually physical space to put the collection together. I understand that before then, they were kind of in boxes in an attic, the books that were Mennonite-specific. So when the north wing of the old administration building was constructed, space in the mezzanine, in the east room of the mezzanine, was designated for the historical library. And at that point, collecting really ramped up as well. So they were focusing on books by, about, and for Mennonites at the time, Mennonite culture and theology and history. From there, it moved 15 years later to the basement of Northlawn. I'm not sure which, but I believe one of the East or West dining rooms was where they housed the historical library. I recently came upon this Weather Vane article from 1957 that discusses the move. And then after the library drive in 1969 and the construction of Hartzler Library in 1971, the historical library moved to its present location, which is up on the third floor, and the EMU archives moved to its current location, which is on the first floor. And I just want to note that EMU is not alone in its collecting of these types of books and this kind of library. There are such collections at Bethel, Goshen, and Bluffton, and many other institutions around the mid-century, even non-Mennonite institutions, started collecting special collections around this time. And I recently surveyed the other librarians of these collections, and they told me a little bit of their histories and they told me there was a bit of competition between the key players at each institution about, especially with the rare books, trying to source the best rare books for their collections. So the European collection, this is a photo of one half of the rare book room in the historical library. The other half looks the same. And the European collection covers all of these cases and both sides of the center case. It contains about 2,500 rare books. They were all printed in Europe between 1500 and 1900. Our oldest book is from 1501. And the topics cover religion, arts, Anabaptist history and theology, Dutch history, and we have a sprinkling of science. And I would argue that we have one of the best collections of Dutch Mennonite rare books in North America. And I'll be discussing why a little bit later. Um, the rest of the room is filled with our other collections. There's the Jan Lauken collection, which has rare books that contain illustrations by Jan Lauken, who was a Dutch Mennonite illustrator, best known for his work in The Martyr's Mirror. We also have the American collection, which focuses on books published in the United States from the 18th to the 20th century, and the Rubisch Kiefer collection, which has um, gospel music and other books that were printed by the Rubisch Kiefer Company, which was housed in Dayton, Virginia. So what is a rare book? And as I was doing my research, I found that there's not really consensus on this question. Uh, basically, a rare book is a book that has less supply than it has demand. So a first edition of Harry Potter, published in the UK, could be considered a rare book. But in this context, we're going to be discussing books from the hand press period, which is the 1500s to the 1700s and mostly printed before 1850. So the hand press period was after the introduction of the printing press, but before the process became mechanized. So people were manually typesetting the letters, and they were manually operating the presses. Can anyone tell me when Gutenberg invented his printing press, Mark and Mary excluded? 
not go a little earlier than that. It's 1440. So in 1440, Gutenberg made the first printing press in Western Europe. And from there, it took off, it spread until it gained ubiquity in the 1500s. So books that were printed prior to 1501 are called incunabula or incunables, which is a Latin word, which means out of the cradle. So it's out of the cradle of printing. And they retain some characteristics from the manuscript uh, era, uh, but they're also printed books. So our oldest book, like I said, is from 1501. So it might have missed the cutoff, but we'll count it anyway because it has some of these characteristics. This is the first page of this book. So you can see that it has some interesting coloring where the, some of the letters are colored red. That process is called rubrication. So after printing, they paid someone to go through and hand color. And you can also see that with this um, big D up here, the printer printed a really small D, and then the person that was doing the rubrication went in with blue ink and drew a much more artistic D. And so throughout the book, you'll see examples of this. And just for reference, Henry VIII was 10 years old when this book was printed. So that'll give you a bit of a gauge. Sometimes it, it, it's hard to kind of conceptualize how old these books are. So I just, uh, like I said in the title of my presentation, I called it Judging Books by Their Covers because I intended to spend a lot of time reviewing the bindings, which I did because they were varied and interesting. Um, at the time of printing like this during the hand press period, people would pay the printer for the text block and then they would go to a binder and they would pay to have it bound. So they would choose what kind of level of binding they wanted. So you could get a luxury binding or you could get more of a discount binding. Um, some examples we have here that are most common are calf or leather, and this one has brass bosses, like uh, protectors, and it also has a lot of blind stamping, which means that it was tooled with leather stamps, but not gilded, doesn't have gold accents on it. The one in the top center is vellum, and vellum is a uh, usually kind of a creamy white or uh, yellow, and it's the skin of a young animal, sometimes an unborn animal, and um, it's a pretty common binding material that I found. And this one is missing its ties. You can see the ties on the bottom one. This one's missing its ties. Um, we also have pigskin. And pigskin, you'll often see that it's quite elaborately tooled. And that's because when the leather, or the pig leather is treated, you can still see the hair follicles. I have a close up on the next screen. So you kind of need to cover that up with some of the decoration. And then some of the ones that I found most interesting were the recycled manuscripts. So this would be quite a discount binding. They're just reusing old materials they had sitting around. Um, and it's fascinating now because we see these manuscripts as very rare and valuable, but they just kind of saw them, you know, things on the recycling pile to reuse. So they're both handwritten. The one on the right is more formal. It's actually a biblical text. And then the one on the left just kind of almost looks like a letter or something someone wrote to someone else. And that one's in French, I believe. So here are some other examples that I found. Um, the pigskin is up close up there. I found this really fascinating one that looks like painted vellum. So someone went through and hand colored it. That's the only one I found like that in our collection. Uh, you can see more examples of the stamping and then some really interesting kind of half bindings. Uh, the one on the bottom, wood was commonly used as a cover material, but it was often then covered by the leather or vellum or, or other material. But this one has its wood on display. And then the one at the top has leftover printed material that was kind of patched together. 
And then this one has an elaborate crest on it. So although I found these bindings to be really interesting, after I did some reading uh, during my the first week of my sabbatical, I read a book called Provenance Research in Book History, and I became kind of enamored with the idea of finding evidence of previous owners. The provenance means where books came from. Um, and so I started to focus more on the marginalia that I was finding. So marginalia means handwritten evidence of previous owners, things written in the margins. That can include ex libris markings, so where, when something was from the library of someone, they would write ex libris. Notes people wrote, manicules, doodles, poems, and music. So margin notes I commonly found in the 16th century editions. I'm, I'm hypothesizing that it kind of fell out of favor to, to write in your books as the years went on, because I didn't see many examples of that in the 18th century. They were more pristine copies. But people were very engaged in their reading at this time, and there were lots of notes underlining, um, long margin notes at the end. Manicules were my favorite thing to find. Manicules are little pointing fingers that people would draw in their books to kind of highlight, bring attention to certain passages. Um, in the 16th century books, they were all handwritten. And then in the 17th century, they were printed. So they became kind of established part of printing. And in this example, you can see that there's a very elaborate printed one. And then there's also uh, these really tiny printed ones. And then there's a hand-drawn one, too. So there were all three there. And then the person on the right was getting very fancy with the cuffs that they were drawing on their manicules. I also found some doodles, which I just was really taken by, because it was such a humanizing thing to find in these books. Uh, I think we often think of historical people as very stuffy and kind of boring. But they, they took time to draw these little doodles of faces. Um, there was this elaborate kind of interwoven knot. I found a tree. I found a heart that had a moon and sun in it. And then more doodles. They were always, the faces were almost always in profile. I'm not sure. Someone should study why people always drew faces in profile. But I found that really interesting. And then some more examples of books that just got scribbled all over. Writing practice was really common to find. So paper wasn't as um, readily available then. So they would use whatever paper they had. Someone hand wrote music in one of their books. And then in this book over here, um, they actually wrote a bit of genealogy. And the last line says, I can't read such and such, born the 15th day of November, 1715. So we just missed their 207th birthday. But they left a mark of when their birthday was. I found many longer notes as well. Most of these notes would be in Latin or Dutch or German. So they weren't always um, things that I could decipher. And also Latin hand often had a lot of um, shorthand to it. And so it was difficult to figure out what they were writing. But some of them were much clearer. The one on the right is a chronicle of genealogy of a Dutch family. And um, it notes the years that everyone was born. And sometimes it would note marriages and, and other information like that. This one, too. This one is in English, so I could read the quotation they put, which is, the devil's first assault is violent, but if he, oh, I forget, then val is valiantly resisted, his second temptations will be weaker, and being once foiled, he proves himself a coward. So they were quoting someone there. And then the second one is in Latin. 
but Hugh Nanny felt like he needed to write that one down. And then here on the right, John Whitmer is my name, born in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, 1774. And then I think he's listed when his children are born as well. So these are important records of families as well that I hope to transcribe and make available at some point because I know in my genealogical research, I would love if I found a Bible that had all the history of my forebears in it. I, I often found complete poems. I've done a lot of research on this Latin poem, which is patientia, which is patience, and I don't see anything. So maybe it was an original composition by this Conrad Kolb from Wartenberg in 1601, um, but I'm not sure. And then this book on the left has long manuscript notes on the back, but then also used in the construction was a manuscript, an illuminated manuscript that also had notes on it. So there's just so much richness to be found in these the collections. I also found not just writing in the books, but I found things in the books. And I left them there for now because I figured they've been there long enough and I don't need to move them. I do know that in the historical library, there have been times where uh, things have been removed and uh, Lois Bowman used to make a display of things found in books, so we do have a collection of that. Uh, one of the things I found was this interesting wax seal and the date of 1594 is above it. I don't know if that's the date that the seal was put on or, or what. The next is a 50 cent note from the county of Rockingham but unfortunately, other than June 1st, I don't know what, it, what year it dates to. So I would love to know a little bit more about why they had a 50 cent note. Mark, maybe you can do some research into that. I found a pressed, uh, maybe it's a five leaf clover in a very old Bible, four leaf clover or five leaf clover. I found this little fragment of an illuminated manuscript in the back of one of our books, and it actually has gold ink that is metallic, that's very interesting to see. And then the next ones were some of my favorite finds. I found spiders. <clears throat> I, think, I think this spider might actually be in the midst of a meal and it was interrupted when it was squished, however many hundreds of years ago. And then the second spider I found more recently, I was preparing for the Erasmus Symposium. <coughs> Excuse me. And I happened to find this spider in our book. I've also found flies <coughs> to go along with the spiders. Um, this one is in the same book that the second spider's in. <coughs> so they're there together forever. Occasionally, a lot of our books have beautiful etchings and illustrations, but occasionally I would find ones that were hand-tinted, and those were always extraordinary finds. And what impressed me so much was how vibrant the colors continued to be many, many years after they were originally done. <clears throat> so how did it get here? Provenance is a fancy French word, and the dictionary defines it as a record of ownership of a work of art or an antique used as a guide to authenticity or quality. So like I said earlier, the mid-20th century was a time of great acquisition for the European collection. Hubert Pellman, who was the author of EMC's 50-year history, writes, in the late 40s, Irvin B. Horst and Paul Peachy, both on relief and service duty in Europe, were commissioned to purchase Dutch and German works which they deemed essential for the library. And Sadie Hartzler herself wrote in a 1952 bulletin article about the historical library 
How often Irvin Horst searched enthusiastically through the dusty stacks of some antique shop in Holland is hard to say. Paul Pici has sent some from Germany. These men keep our library in mind as they live in Europe. And Irvin lived in Europe for a long time. He taught at the University of Amsterdam. He taught Mennonite history at the University of Amsterdam from the 1960s to the 1980s. And he would frequently, <coughs> excuse me, he would frequently source um, old books for us and send them over, or sometimes he brought them back. A number of them he kept within his own personal collection until later in his life when he then transferred them to the historical library. Grace Showalter, who's pictured top left, was the librarian in the historical library and the archivist from the 50s to 1990 when she um, passed away. She was an expert on local history, Virginia Mennonites, and genealogy. And Lois Bowman Kreider began working at EMU in 1962. She taught Latin, and she was also an assistant in the historical library. And in 1992, after Grace Showalter's passing, she came on as the historical librarian, and she was in that role until her retirement in 2014. And that's when I came along. Um, after her retirement, she continued to volunteer her time in the historical library. And her first project, the first one on her list after retirement, was to complete the cataloging of all of our rare book backlog. And she did so. Um, she had specialized in rare book cataloging in her master's program. And so we were very lucky to have her gifts shared with us during that time. And I majorly benefited from that during this project. I always had a good catalog record to go back to. Um, other ways that we have acquired books are through donations. Um, Elwood Yoder is here, and he coordinated a donation back in 2007 of a volume from 1539, a Josephus volume from a, a Swiss couple. Um, and then also throughout history, they have <coughs> scouted book sales, rare, rare book dealer catalogs, and other things for things to add to our collection. We're not really actively collecting anymore um, because of space and because of uh, funding, but um, they did a lot of work during the mid to later 20th century to really enrich our collection. So one of the ways to track provenance is through these ex libris signatures. I mentioned these in the marginalia section. Uh, in the top left here, we have Johann Jacob Schmidt. I don't know if Jingleheimer was part of his name, but <laughs> he's one of them there. Uh, in the middle, we have Sebastian Huber, who bought this book in 28th of September, 1780. Um, on the far right, you can kind of see the many different people that own this book. Sometimes the people would cross out those who owned it before them, which I thought was a bit petty. It's kind of hard for us to try and trace when they're scribbling out with ink. Uh, but sometimes they would leave sort of a book genealogy for us to trace. Um, in the bottom left, we have Albert von Kalker, who bought it the 17th of August, 1745, and he actually noted how much he paid for it. Um, in the middle, we have someone from 1582, and then I rediscovered this Sir Henry Bedingfield um, signature yesterday or a few days ago, and it was from a book from 1583, and this man died in 1583, but I think it's the same one. He was a privy counselor to Edward VI and Queen Mary I, and he also was the guard set by Mary I of Queen Elizabeth I when she was imprisoned in the Tower of London and at Woodstock. So he was her jailer at that time. Um, so that's kind of a, a, quite a fancy previous owner. 
like I said, sometimes you can use the book to trace where, where things came from. This is the same book, and on two sides we have two different signatures, and the one on the right, the person indicates that he was given it by the person on the left, I think. Another way that I started tracing uh, previous ownership is through book plates. Um, book plates came about in the 19th and 20th centuries. That's when they were most common. And there were a number of <coughs> different themes that I found in these book plates. The first one was heraldry, so these sort of shields and crests. Um, I have Googled most all of these people, and sometimes all you find is the book plate because they're collector's items as well as informational items. But sometimes I found some interesting information. So this P. Schmidt van Gelder was a Dutch art collector, and he died in 1956, so he's much more modern. This Richard Mostyn was a Welsh lawyer and a member of the landed gentry in Wales. And then up top here, Rudolf Hugo Driesen and Caroline E.F. Klein were actually a married couple, so they had a joint book plate, which is the only one that I've seen of that kind. We have, <laughs> we have many more <laughs> heraldry ones. Um, in the bottom left corner with the swan is Isaac Mullman, who was a wealthy sugar merchant from Amsterdam who lived in the 1800s. In the, on the right-hand side here in the middle, those two book plates are from two families, the Bridges family and the Lee Warner family, and I found that they both lived in a stately home called Tiberton Court in Herefordshire, and the daughter of a, the Bridges married uh, Lee Warner, and so that's how the house got passed down. So I assume that this book was in the library there, and they just kind of put a different book plate in. And I couldn't find much information about these. I know that the one with the crow, their motto means God feeds the crows. So that's a cool motto. But I couldn't find much else about them. Uh, another theme that I found quite frequently were libraries and books, which seems quite fitting for book plates. Um, and often there was the motif of a monk in a scriptorium uh, handwriting manuscripts, which was a callback to an earlier time. And there's another one of the, a monk in his scriptorium. And finally, there were a lot that had um, Art Nouveau or Art Deco influences, and those often had animals as well. I think the one with the owl sitting on a book is probably my favorite, it's very cute. Um, but just some very interesting examples there as well. This one with the thumbprint, I tried to look up this person, and there was a Lewis McKinley Turner who worked at the Library of Congress in the 1800s and stole many documents from the Library of Congress, and I don't, there was also one that was a rare bookseller, and I don't think they're the same man, but I'm not sure which one that belongs to, uh, but I would love to know. And finally, we have some depicting castles and ships and um, I think the one in the middle, this Ferdinand Hoffman was a courtier in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So he has a full page, very fancy one. There were a few people that I were able, was able to track down, especially those who lived more recently. So these are some of the previous owners of our books. Dr. Jan T. Winkel was a professor of Dutch language and literature at the University of Amsterdam in the late 1800s. 
and I think he has a very kind face. Uh, in the middle, Estella Boas Kogel was a Jewish woman from the Netherlands, and she died on December 18, 1944, at the age of 68 in hiding from the Nazis. And on the far right, we have a woman named Emmy Destin, who has one of the most interesting book plates, I would say, with a child trapped inside a skeleton, which actually I saw that same kind of picture in another illustration, so I'm not quite sure what it represents, but it was pretty common. She was a Czech soprano, an opera singer. She performed in Europe and at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. And her face is on Czech money, and there's an asteroid named after her. So she made quite an impact as well. The book we have from her is a um, history of Mennonites in the Netherlands. Um, the book from Estella Boas Kogel was, I think, the works of Josephus. And then I think uh, Jan Tewinkel was some sort of um, biblical reference book. We have a book from the library of His Royal Highness the Duke of Sussex, not Prince Harry. This was the earlier iteration of the title. And he got it from his friend Frederick Earl Beecham. Um, this Duke of Sussex was, Sussex was Prince Augustus Frederick, who was the son of King George III, who you might know as the one that the American Revolution was fought against. He was an avid book collector and had over 50,000 volumes in his collection. And he was also Queen Victoria's favorite uncle. And I think I read that he walked her down the aisle. So he had a, an interesting place in the royal family. Joseph Angus, pictured in the middle, was an English Baptist minister. And I saw that he really um, was a proponent for the, what was it? He really liked eternal damnation, essentially, was what I found about him. So he seemed pretty hardcore. And then finally, we have Howard Osgood, who was an Old Testament scholar and translator who taught at Rochester Theological Seminary in New York. And we have about 19 books that once belonged to him. So he was also an avid book collector. One of our books came from Chatsworth House, which is the seat of the Dukes of Devonshire, but some may recognize as the setting of Pemberley in 2005's Pride and Prejudice movie. Um, and this is the library in Chatsworth House, and so I think we can all agree that though our rare book, room is very lovely, this poor book has been downgraded from <laughs> these surroundings to our humble boat. And finally, stamps were another way that I could trace the history. And stamps were most commonly used by institutions like monasteries or libraries. Um, and this stamp came up a few times. We have six volumes from this collection. This is the Bibliothèque Buxheim, which was a Carthusian monastery that was started in 1402. It was a very wealthy monastery. And they collected books, although I found an article that said no one quite knows why they collected books, but they collected over 50,000 volumes. And when the monastery was disbanded and um, sold in the 18th century, the new owners had to sell the collection off. Um, and these books are distinct on the shelf because of this bright red kind of shelf. It's sort of a call number. It would have had a, a meaning within the collection that they had, but it's different to what we use. So why does it matter? We have all these interesting books, but, but why do we need to keep them? Susan Orlean says in her book, The Library Book, that a book feels like a thing alive in this moment and also alive on a continuum, from the moment the thoughts about it first percolated in the writer's mind to the moment it sprang off the printing press. 
a lifeline that continues as someone sits with it and marvels over it, and it continues on time after time after time. Once words and thoughts are poured into them, books are no longer just paper and ink and glue. They take on a kind of human vitality. So one of the main ways that I use these rare books uh, at EMU is for classes, like Mary said, for student engagement. We don't live in a very old area. I think our oldest building downtown, the Thomas Harrison House, is from the 1700s. And so we don't interact with history on a daily basis that folks in other parts of the world do. So I feel like these books are a way to give students that kind of portal to history and, and make a connection with the time period they're studying. Uh, um, a month or two ago, I had two classes visit from EMHS, and they were studying Martin Luther and Erasmus, and I found in our collection that we had pamphlets and letters between uh, Martin Luther and Erasmus. They would often print letters for distribution. And it was just great to say, yes, these were contemporary to Martin Luther's time period. So these were published when he was alive. And I think that for a lot of the students, that really kind of brought home the concepts they had been studying. When it comes to the content, I think the preservation of early Anabaptist thought is essential because we easily forget how radical it was. We've, those of us who are North American Mennonites have assimilated and grown quite comfortable, and we don't have a lot of challenges to our faith. Um, the rise of the printing press really fueled the Reformation, and the Anabaptists took advantage of that. However, their ideas were deeply unpopular. I discovered this summer, one of my favorite discovery, was broadsides from the city of Cologne in what's now Germany in the 1500s that ban Anabaptists from the city. They forbid anyone from aiding an Anabaptist, and they also ban them from printing their books and their ideas. Um, every day I walk past a large version of this print. This is from Jan Lauken in the Martyr's Mirror, and we actually own the original copper plate that he uh, did for this one. A number of them were discovered some years ago and they were kind of purchased and distributed amongst the Mennonite schools. And we own this one. Um, and this is uh, depicting Anabaptist martyrs being burned, but also books being burned. So it wasn't enough for them to kill the people, the believers. They also had to kill their ideas alongside of them. Um, but as we can see, the ideas lasted. They, didn't, they were not successful. And I hope that they will continue to persist. And I think that stewarding these sort of collections is an important aspect of that. And finally, I found this work to be very poignant when I would find the signatures and the book plates. And if I was able to find information about these people, it felt like I was sort of keeping their memory alive. And especially those from the 1500s who might not have um, monuments to them, um, or they've been lost to the to, to the ages. Um, it kind of felt like I was doing some work to, to keep their memory alive. Um, I believe that the act of remembering is holy work, and I think it connects us to the past, gives us clarity for the present, and can help us as we shape the future. So out of this sabbatical, I made a over 300-page annotated bibliography of our collection. Um, and I hope to add all of those notes to the library catalog eventually. Some of them are already there, the work that Lois and Grace did, but, but some of them were not put in. I made, made a complete inventory of the European collection. I'm happy to say nothing was missing or misplaced. Everything was present and accounted for. 
I also inventoried the vault. Um, the vault is not as mysterious as it sounds. It's a room in the archives that is locked, and that's where we keep things that need special preservation or extra security. And I have a piece about that after this. I also took a daily record of the temperature and humidity levels. It's important to monitor climate control in these collections. And I worked at digitizing a copy of the, a book called Cosmographia. And the way I did that is instead of using a flatbed scanner, I set up a tripod with a digital camera and a light. And I, I tried that system, which is another way of digitizing. So <clears throat> that's something that we can maybe do in the future with books that are not good candidates for flatbed scanning. And then finally, I've been working to get these books into new classes where they haven't been seen before. So I've been contacting professors that might have interest in, in making connections. Um, this is the Cosmographia. It was published in 1564. And what I find so interesting about it is that it's a science book. It's about um, like astronomy and uh, navigation and things, and it has these turnable <laughs> interactive charts in it where you can spin the thing around to, to make your calculations. You can calculate the horizon line, which I think is really interesting. Um, and it also has this fold-out map, um, which is unfortunately torn. But when I saw it, I was so excited because if you look up where North America is, they haven't charted it yet. <laughs> there was, there, they just hadn't really gotten there yet. So there's not much North America. And also Australia is not there. So it's an interesting snapshot of what they knew uh, at that time in history. All right, I'm gonna show you the, the one most interesting thing I found in the vault. And I wanna know, what do you think this is made out of? And if you already know, <laughs> Mark, you can't say it. Evan, do you know? Anyone else wanna guess? Yeah? Yeah, it's hair, it's human hair. Um, this was a folk art that was popular at the turn of the last century. Um, this is hair, it's a hair wreath. This one was completed by Miss Maggie Driver in 1900 from hair obtained from the heads of friends and family members. <laughs> so it's, a, it's beautiful, but it creeps me out a little bit too, I have to be honest. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting piece of work. So what questions do you have? And I think Rhonda's gonna go around with the microphone. I think Evan up there has a question. Hey Simone, this is great, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Can you go back to the, um, the ticket that you found? <laughs> yeah. I think it said A.M. Newman, and it's, there it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. A.M. Newman was the guy who um, uh, burned the records oh. at the courthouse. He was like the court clerk. Okay. And I think it was only for about five or six years in the mid-1860s. Okay. So that might date that for you. Okay. He, cool. He's the one that freaked out when the Union soldiers were coming mm -hmm. through and yeah, packed right. everything in a wagon and... The wagon got burned. Aha, uh -huh. okay. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, so thanks, Simone. I think this is one of the best colloquiums ever. <laughs> um, I have 
a lamentably crass question. Okay. <laughs> Did you look up any of the values of the books? Oh. And what are the most valuable books we have and how much are they worth? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't, I didn't look up the values and I don't know. I, I know what they were purchased for in the 60s and that doesn't translate to modern uh, things. I did attend the rare book and manuscript section conference this summer and I was looking, they had a lot of rare booksellers, um, catalogs and things and I was looking at one of the catalogs and they had a book that was Anabaptist related so I looked into that and that one was going for I think $4,000. So I think a lot of these books would have a pretty high value but we don't really value them individually for insurance purposes. So I'm not exactly sure. And also sometimes it depends on who owned it before that would give them more. So I think if people knew, you know, so-and-so owned it, then they might find it more interesting. But sorry, I don't have done numbers for you. This is probably a good follow-up question to Peter's, but can you talk about um, the like safety and security around <laughs> the rare book collection? And also, um, you talked a little bit about the vault, but any special care um, for any of the books? Mm -hmm. um, one thing I did when it comes to special care is as I went through, I kind of did some maintenance care. There was a woman that visited from the Northeast Document Conservation Company, or I forget what the other C is, um, a, a year or two ago. And so she showed me some of the things we could do. So that was like replacing the cotton ties that we used to keep the integrity of some of the books. Um, I swapped out some of the acid-free paper on some of the paper materials in the vault. So they were like, um, we have some clothing in the vault and historical artifacts like that. So I did just kind of general upkeep to make sure that things were in good shape. I also need to swap out a lot of the um, book tags that say the call number because a lot of them have gotten really brown and acidified over the years. Um, as far as security, we just keep it locked with a separate key from a lot of the other keys. We try to limit access to who's able to go in there. Um, we hope to get a camera soon. That would be good. Um, and the vault also is under a special lock and key. And someone asked this, Mary asked this at the Erasmus Symposium, and I was saying it's such a balance with these books because we want to show them to people who are interested for scholarly purposes, but you don't really want to kind of announce your collection to people who might be interested for more nefarious purposes. We did have one of our Erasmus volumes that was stolen, sort of stolen. We sent it out for rebinding, and it was um, never returned to us by that binder. And so we do have a, a story like that, but other um, libraries have had worse thievery. We've been fortunate. So it's a balance between advertising what we have so that people can come see it, but not wanting too many people to come. I believe we have a camera already, right? Um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Since this yeah. is like... Um, well, maybe we can uh, get facilities on On, that. We can kind of, on live stream and so on. Yeah. Um, can you go back to where you had a, um, uh, some genealogical information mm -hmm. that had been written? It was like a Dutch one, because I think I know those people. Oh, okay. So this is totally exciting. <laughs> yeah, Jan-Klaus Kluke. 
Yeah, so anyway, this is what I call one of my Mennonites. Um, some of you know I study um, Dutch Mennonites and do genealogy on other people's families. And uh, yeah, right here I know these people, so I'm very excited about that. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna come, uh, I'm gonna come look at that. Yeah. So what's, do you find, feel like that, uh, and this is in rare book cataloging, do you feel like providing the notes then will, will enhance the collection a lot? And you think scholars like Mary, if you put these notes in, will come visit us more? <laughs> I hope so. Um, well, uh, this is sort of a boring tie to security, but our books, as far as I understand it, are not on um, WorldCat. They're just locally cataloged. And so if anyone can look at our EMU's catalog and see them, but you can't go to WorldCat, which is a broader search engine, and find our, Audrey's looking at something, maybe not. Um, so I, I think we might move that way too, to kind of tell people what we have. Um, and I do think adding it will, it will be helpful for me as I search in the catalog, and then hopefully other people can find these sort of resources as well. This is kind of a trivia question, which I could probably just ask you in the hallway of the right. library. But unborn animal skin used as a binding? Mm -hmm. How does that happen? Well, for, I was looking it up today because I think vellum has had a, a wide definition over time. But it would be like stillborn animals. They would, they would use, like, harvest their skin. <laughs> That's kind of a weird thing to say. But yeah. Actually, I think in some cases they actually um, um, executed the mother to oh, get well. the skin, yeah. just to be honest about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really, I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, this is about books, and, and that's really intriguing. And then, and then you had that one uh, representation of the hair art, mm -hmm. and I know it's not necessarily part of what we think about the way that we would, in our collection, reference other expressions of a place or a culture, a people. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of um, how, we, how we represent um, parts of the identity of this institution in forms like the hair art, let's say? Or is that not our job? What do you think? That's a, that's a fascinating question. Um, I was telling my husband recently that, you know, these rare books are such a small part of my work and of, of our collection, and we do have much, a much broader collection, especially in the archives. And so I think part of the work that I do is trying to use all of those parts to represent the story of EMU, the story of Virginia Mennonite Conference, and then this is a much broader, much older story. So it is an interesting balance to try to keep all those pieces together. I'm Elwood Yoder. Simone uh, mentioned my name earlier for donating a Latin translation of Josephus uh, from the 1530s, printed at the Beck Press in Strasbourg. A Swiss couple was cleaning out their attic. It's a true story. 
And they discovered that at the end of the book, this Latin translation, it gave the Beck Press identity from Strasbourg. They were trying to downsize and they wanted to get rid of the book. They searched the internet. They found a book that I had written about the Beck Press in Strasbourg. They emailed me in Virginia from Switzerland. And we were back and forth and they finally said, well, would you like to have the book about Phil Adamachir? <laughs> they literally were offering to send the book to me in Virginia. I said, well, yes, I would, but I would donate it to the historical library, the rare book collection, East Manhattan University. And that's when the conversation ended. The Swiss couple went away from the email uh, discussion for several weeks, and I thought I lost them. Finally, several weeks later, the Swiss man came back and said, well, we didn't know anything about Mennonites and knew nothing about EMU or your historical library. We checked out your story, and your story it can be verified on the internet, and we're going to put the book in the mail and send it to you. And that's exactly what happened. One day, the mail brought it to work, the high school where I was working, and they brought it to my classroom, this rare book. And so we donated it. Some of these books have circuitous, strange stories behind them. There are only two or three other books identical to it anywhere in North America in other rare book collections. Mm -hmm. Thank you, I would. Um, so I understand that um, as institutions kind of go out of business or downsize, uh, and there's some of that going on a lot recently, um, what do they do with these collections someday when they have to close shop? I saw a number of, there was evidence of a number of places where they had to disband their collections. Often they'll have a really large book sale. There was one book plate I found that was from the Virtue and Cahill Library in England. And the book plate read, like, the, this collection should never be disbanded for any reason ever. And then I was researching it a bit and I found an identical book plate that had a stamp over top that said, due to enemy action during World War II, we think that it's safest for these books to be dispersed overseas. And so sometimes people do have to make hard calls like that, but I think typically you would just kind of sell it on the rare book market, which is very active to this day. So about the book that we was stolen, I remember um, walking up with Lois Bowman to the post office to get the book that came back in the mail. Mm. She was so excited to get <laughs> yeah. it back. So it was, it was rather a, and the person did get prosecuted. Did they get prosecuted? They did, yeah. They got yeah. prosecuted for book theft. They, they were stealing from other people too, not yeah, just we us. Yeah, we were the only one. Yeah, Lois worked very hard uh, in it, with this collection in its entirety, but that book specifically to recover it. She worked very hard for many years to recover it. So I'm interested in the connection between technological change and social change. 
and I had read that the Protestant Reformation was enabled in large part by the printing press, and Luther was able to spread his ideas that way. Mm-hmm. What about the Anabaptist uh, Radical Reformation? Was that also enabled by the printing press, or was it word of mouth? Uh, yeah, I think it was also enabled by the printing press. Um, we have, <laughs> we have uh, not as many, but we have many books against the Anabaptists as well as for the Anabaptists. And so there was definitely a dialogue going on at the time surrounding this more niche movement within the Protestant movement. Um, so it's interesting to see how that discussion continued. And even in England, it wasn't just in Germany and the Netherlands and Switzerland, it was also in England that they were discussing these sort of radical folks. Are there uh, pamphlets and broadsides in the collection related to the controversies and conflicts with the Anabaptists? There are, yeah, there are some. Mm-hmm. And we actually have some in English too, which is fun because then you can read the, read the arguments without having to translate them. Just to note, because I have the mic, the first printing press in the United States, I understand, was a Rittenhouse. Mm-hmm. So I have two questions. I'm going to ask the easy one first. You mentioned digitizing the cosmographia. Mm -hmm. Is that the plan for all of the rare books, to get them digitized in some way, shape, or form? No, that is not the plan for all the rare books. A lot of our rare books, actually, if you would search them, they have been digitized. Similar copies have been digitized by other institutions. Um, But no, there would be way too many for us to digitize. How do you choose which ones you digitize and which ones you don't? I chose that one just because I thought it was really neat. Some of them we choose if scholars have interest and they're looking to see our copy. Um, So it's kind of an as-needed basis. Um, But there's not really a system that we have for designating them at this point. And then my harder question is, I'm sitting here really enthralled by your presentation, Simone, and looking at that, um, uh, I forget what it's called, the the picture of the book burning and the -hmm. the burning of the martyrs. And I'm, I'm... thinking about you within the context of, or your work within the context of the modern day book banning, and and I'm wondering what responses you have to that based on your work here. I was just thinking about that during the Erasmus Symposium. One of my responses was that we also have been seeing an uptick in book challenges from very vocal minority groups in even in our area at school board meetings and things. And um, I think that that's clearly a very, um, narrow way to see controlling information, especially, you know, we have way more than the printing press now, we have the internet. And I think that the cat's out of the bag. We're not gonna be able to put all this information back in. And um, controlling minority voices is not the way forward. So I hope that these sort of things are not successful. Um, And I also recognize that it's a a big burden on librarians to have to navigate these challenges, um, those that are working in schools, so. That's unfortunate as well. It takes up a lot of their time. 